So what about all this art as religion business? Is it, as the late great Freddie Mercury might say, just radio caca? The reality hits the fan as Dougie Padilla joins me in studio to talk all things art, life, and soul while confronting the potential for a fairy tale approach to the arts and spirituality for that matter. Won't you join us in four, three, two, Hello, art enthusiasts and art lovers. Welcome to episode three of Art Wonderful, the art podcast where art is a religion. I'm your host, Nicholas Harper. I'm broadcasting from my art studio deep within the Rogue Buddha Gallery. That's in the heart of the Northeast Arts District in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I want to thank you for joining me as we explore everything the arts have to offer. It's the mission of this podcast to spread the gospel of the arts their essential value to our everyday lives, and to offer a deep-dive exploration into this most mysterious of subjects. You can learn more about myself, the Rogue Buddha Gallery, this podcast, and those we have on the show by visiting us online at roguebuddha.com. Click Podcast from the menu. And be sure to listen to the end of this and every episode, as I'll be sharing my pick of what art event you simply can't miss this weekend, should you find yourself in our neck of the woods here in the Twin Cities. This is brought to you by our our amazing partner, we art enthusiasts simply can't live without, mplsart.com. For episode three, I was delighted to have in studio with me an artist that transcends the title artist. Dougie Padilla has been called an art legend, a visionary, and guru. Poet, painter, spirit dancer, Padilla encapsulates all that it is to be an artist. At the heart of his work exists a soul that has traversed worlds and lived many lives, from artist to businessman to communal farmer to humble meditative disciple in India to a father and a husband. You can find more about him online at DougiePadilla.com. On Instagram, at Dougie Land, and Facebook at Dougie Padilla. As this art podcast thing is a new venture for me, I thought it would be amazing to have him on right away as the first artist interview. He's the perfect guest for a number of reasons. First, we're still coming off of what I'm sure is the most important exhibit of his career, which just so happened to take place here at the Rogue Buddha Gallery this past September. Secondly, when I first opened the gallery 20 years ago, He was right here, introducing himself, offering guidance and insights into the art world and asking what my intentions were with this newfangled gallery. And finally, he encapsulates a lot of what this show is all about, in that he covers a lot of ground in the art world, not only as an artist, but a curator, a spokesperson, and advocate and community leader. In fact, one of the boards I sit on, the Northeast Arts District, well, He had something to do with creating that. Oh, and a little art fair in Minneapolis called art world Over the years as I've grown in my role as an artist and gallery owner, I've kept an eye on what Dougie was up to and taken his lead where my involvement in the community at large is concerned. All of that said, I was extremely thankful that Dougie Padilla agreed to be on this newfangled art podcast. Based on prior conversations he and I have had and artist talks he's given, It seemed that his life and art dealt pretty heavily with the spirit world, 
which told me that he tends to believe that there's something more, something beyond what we can experience with our five senses. And I wanted to dig deep into that. But first I asked if he could tell us a little bit about himself and how he got involved in the arts as an artist and as an ambassador of the arts. Ladies and gentlemen, Dougie Padilla. Well, first of all, I'm going to ignore that. And, uh, <laughs> and so it I, starts. I mean, I'll get to that in a second. But the first thing I want to mention is the word is art as religion. Yeah. You know, the Chinese say whatever has a front has a back. The bigger the front, the bigger the back. So that statement has an upside, but it also has a downside. Because there is, <laughs> there's a real negative out there uh, in the way that some people approach the art world and the buying and selling of art, the gallery scene, the museum scene, as a pseudo-religion in, in, in the more superficial sense of the word. Because there's a lot of religion in the world that is just about one inch deep. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and about this, that, and the other. So I think, I think you need to uh, be specific. And um, I'm more interested in the... Just as I'm more interested in spirituality than religion, as many people are, um, I'm more interested in not the spiritual in art, because that's also, uh, everything is capable of a wrong turn. But, uh, and spirituality in art can, can uh, be both deep and superficial. Mm -hmm. It isn't intrinsically deep. Sure. Um, but um, but but somehow in this whole thing, I think it would be nice to delve into uh, sort of a, how can we move archetypally deeper into our own lives via uh, not just visual art, but the arts and creativity. Mm -hmm. Now, what was the question you asked about how I got into all this? <laughs> yeah. What brought you into the arts? What was your like entry, well, entry that's point? Well, that's a question that's, you know, my entry was that uh, in grade school, my mother was a piano teacher, and uh, I grew up in a Lutheran in the suburbs, and um, the Lutheran church that I grew up in, my mom was part of, and I had to go to choir classes. And so by, and sing in the choir, and by the time I was 11, I could sight, read, and sing Bach cantatas. Yeah. And uh, I was part of a choir that was making records of Bach cantatas. That's pretty heavy-duty training. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and by junior high, the, I hated it. I just hated it. Because, you know, what I wanted to be doing is playing baseball 24-7. Yeah. So I could be Willie Mays. Um, but in retrospect, in the rearview mirror, I discovered that the choir master was my first true spiritual teacher. And that, uh, you know, to have, to be able to string, be able to sing the Hallelujah Chorus by memory, you know, by the time you're 15, is a kind of a phenomenal training to have gone through. Yeah. But from there, the, I'll, I'll try to jump to where the, you know, I always... I, I was always making music, although I didn't do very well. I wasn't that good, you know, piano, French horn, flute, guitar, singing. Um, and uh, somewhere in high school, I started writing. So by college, I was a published poet. But then, you know, I flunked out of college and hit the road and fought against the war in Vietnam and lived in Haight-Ashbury and took psychedelics. 
Yeah. So, you know, once you're out there doing that, you're starting, you know, taking psychedelics for me was a very spiritual thing. Um, and, you know, I had a psychotic break at 19, went nuts, um, then got into psychedelics. I had a heart failure at 20. And after that, I ended up in one of the first ashrams in North America in Quebec, the Shivananda Yoga Ashram, where I became a certified yoga instructor in 1969. Mm -hmm. and Was I, that power yoga? Core? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, none of that stuff. None of that stuff was around in those days. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm. Uh, let's just say I'm highly skeptical, because I was taught within a lineage. Mm -hmm. um, where my, I know who my teacher's teachers were, mm -hmm. swamis from India, Swami Vishnu Devananda, Swami Venkatesananda, Swami Chidananda, Swami Satchidananda. And I just felt, um, you know, Hatha Yoga, the postures was just a, just a, you know, a ninth of it. It was a nine, ninefold path, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I find it challenging. So anyway, today that, so I went from there, wandered around the country a lot, lived in ashrams, lived in communes, spiritual communities, helped start co-ops, you know, was a single dad. Then I went to India in 78 to live with Rajneesh, which is a whole other story. Uh, I lived in his ashram out there. And then I came back, spent time studying with a Zen master, Japanese Zen master here in Minneapolis. Uh, was a single dad for eight years, um, helped Robert Bly stop, start the men's movement, uh, the men's mythopoetic movement. Um, yeah. Somewhere in there, the visual art drawing percolated. Mm -hmm. And it was at one of the Bly retreats 30 years ago or more, 40 years ago, whatever, 40 years ago, that I just kind of, the, the I realized I was a visual person. I always thought music was how I faced the world, but it turned out I was visual. What were these retreats? Okay, so uh, Bly in the 70s started working with some amazing women and some amazing other teachers, and there was something called the uh, Great Mother Conference that happened, where it was rebirth of interest in the, you know, the mythopoetic world of the Great Mother. And out of that, it became obvious that men were kind of lost. Mm -hmm. So uh, he started. He did a retreat in California, and then because he's from Minnesota, he was back here lecturing. And uh, he said he wanted to do a retreat here for men, and I said I'd organize it. So I did that for a few years, and I probably went to uh, 15, 20 years of retreats with him. Wow. And mythopoetic in the sense that there is there are whole levels of, you know, life existence living that are largely unknown and ignored in in uh, modern modern western life mm -hmm. and we are trying to reaccess those and some of those are you know i don't know how the gender world would talk about them today but it was important for us to do this uh, in an all-male setting just as the women had gone off in the 70s and really walked through their own doorway which i think was you know, extremely important, and I actually think it is still mm -hmm. extremely important. So we 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 drummed, we danced, we we learned fairy tales, we told myths, and probably you know poetry, art, um, woods, nature, 
but probably the most important thing Bly did was not only was he a, a great teacher and mentor to me and to you know, literally thousands of other people, but he brought in other teachers that were extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So I got to uh, spend a bunch of time with the great uh, Jungian archetypal psychologist James Hillman. Okay. I got to spend time with the African elder uh, Melodoma Somme. I got to spend time with the Mayan medicine man, shaman, uh, Martin Prechtel. Okay. Um, there was just this list, the tracker, stalker, John Stokes, just this list of amazing people. I can tell stories forever hanging out with those folks because those that was brilliant stuff. Yeah. And somewhere along the way, by the in the 80s, I was being a single dad, and uh, but I was... Whenever I wasn't being a single dad, I was down at the bars hanging out with, in the art world. Yeah. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was, you know, one of the important things if you're a self-taught artist is to see, you know, a thousand shows, mm -hmm. uh, to look at a thousand books, to talk to artists day and night. Yeah. And I was doing that in the 80s while I was learning to draw. And by somewhere in the early 90s, uh, I had enough confidence to just kind of pop out and start going public. Yeah. And started, um, because I'm a lifelong activist and organizer, I just started organizing my own shows. You know? Yeah. Was that at the uh, uh, the Tire? It was at the S&M Tire building, I think, yeah. that I started that stuff. I started with something called Salon Surrealismo, where I invited artists over and, you know, I, I facilitated discussions of yeah. various things. A nice side story is I have a crazy friend who, uh, used to drive to Salon Sartissimo with a, um, a lampshade on his head <laughs> in, in honor of the Surrealists. Oh, really? Oh, funny. <laughs> and then, you know, I started Art Jones Gallery. I started a pop-up gallery in the 90s. Yeah. Which was, it wasn't a thing then. Nobody ever called it a pop-up gallery. I just started showing my work and other people's work. And uh, so Art Jones Gallery started back then. And I then I started Salon Artissimo, where I, I, I you know, I did all sorts of, performances and discussions and things and invited people over to do this, that, and the other. Yeah. And, um, but anyway, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, I worked my way up spiritually through, you know, I'm initiated in three traditions of, of, of Shivananda, Yogananda, and uh, Rajneesh. And I came close to taking initiation in the, Zen Buddhist tradition with category Roshi, but yeah, Roshi sent me to India instead. Yeah, can I ask what an initiation looks like or entails? It's very different, and there's different senses of the word initiation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm talking about formal initiations. Yep. Uh, in the Hindu traditions or the uh, Japanese Buddhist traditions, mm -hmm. but you also can be initiated by the universe. You have to know what's going on, but you might wake up. I, this has happened to me, and I can wake up from a dream. It's happened just a few times in my life where I wake up from a dream, and I was taken to a different place by spiritual teachers, and, you know, okay, now you start the next chunk of your life. Yeah, yeah. But with the formal thing, the first real initiation in the Hindu tradition that I had was with Swami, with Swami Venkatesananda at the Shivananda Ashram in Quebec. 
and I had to bring some fruit and mm -hmm. a few flowers. And we sat on the floor. He was a monk, an Indian monk. And uh, he gave me a mantra. And he taught me how to uh, say and chant my mantra. Yeah. And 51 years later, I still do it every day. Yeah. But initiation occurs in, in many different ways from different people. Yeah. So you're not jumping in the waters of Lake Minnetonka as Prince would want us to do in purple. Well, no, I mean, that can be part of I mean, ritual is important. Yeah. And, and ritual, I do ritual all the time. I did ritual here at your show that you didn't know about. Oh, oh. I never, I never open a show or have a poetry performance that I'm doing or anything I do without blessing the space. Yeah. No, I was, a, we had talked about that. Okay, so I told Well, you. and part of your show itself was, I would say the whole big component of the show is ritual. Uh, for those that weren't here, there was a, one of the rooms dedicated to an altar or an ofrenda. Uh, can you talk about well, the purpose I mean, of I the think, ofrenda? Well, I think uh, I'm, I'm a Norwegian, Mexican-American, and cowboy are my heritages. And I've been involved in the Latino art world in Minneapolis for 20 years. Uh, no, more than that, Jesus. Uh, 20, getting towards 30. Um and been doing the day of the did been celebrating Day of the Dead since my dad died in '92. Uh, started celebrating with a group called Crearte here that had been created. And uh, Dios Muertos has to do with the notion in Mexico, in parts of Mexico, because parts of Mexico have become very westernized. But in parts of Mexico, you celebrate uh, sort of this combo harvest festival slash uh, all souls day that is part native and uh, part uh, catholic and part everything else and um it's uh, for me it's visual ritual and um i created a space in your back room um an altar it actually was a a grouping of altars mm -hmm. and there was uh, Day of the Dead art on the walls that I'd made, specifically Calaveras, which are paintings or drawings of skulls, but not skulls in the sort of gothy or metalhead sense, but rather uh, a joyous sense because Day of the Dead, you know, I've gone down to Mexico and been in the Zapotec Indian villages for Day of the Dead. And it's a joyous time. It's a time when the spirits of those who have gone to the other side come back and visit. So the so the folks in those villages, the native people in those villages, you know, they spend weeks cleaning up the the uh, the graveyards, and then they don't have much money, but they spend it on food and flowers and cover the graves with food and flowers. It's gorgeous, and then they have bands, and they you know they have. They party all night long, yeah, and uh, they invite the dead to come back. And I like to say I'm a Dios Muertos literalist, okay, because for me, the dead do come back, and I do experience the spirit world. I find that day of the dead time of year is uh, a time for me when the veil between worlds is very thin. That said, I have to add here that I'm pretty psychic. And mm -hmm. I've had psychic events happening ever since my 20s and LSD and all that stuff. And um, about 
eight or nine, ten years ago as I got older and as my testosterone quieted down and as my meditation practice deepened, uh, I became more and more psychic to the point where I moved my studio to rural Wisconsin to escape a lot of the noise of the city. And um, we all experience psychic phenomena except that most people uh, are so busy with life and life is so noisy they don't really realize what's the subtler levels of what's going on. Yeah. And so I've spent a lot of time in life trying to open up to those subtler levels. And for the show here, I tried to create uh, some doorways for other people to experience yeah. subtler things. So I did this. And people had profound experiences in there. Yeah, it, it was a pretty powerful room. It was powerful for me, and I know I know there were people that cried in there. Yeah. And so it was focused on three people. My father, Donald Gabino Padilla, the sculptor Louise Nevelson, yeah. and the jazz musician Sun Ra. And I picked my father for obvious reasons, because he's an amazing guy. Uh, Nevelson and Sun Ra I picked because they're some of many people that were pivotal for me back in the day in the 60s and 70s, you know, they're just amazing people from my artistic past. But um, also I picked them because, you know, they dressed weird, they acted weird, they lived weird, they got way out there, they didn't yeah. give a shit. And I feel like even though people think they're really happening and, and, <laughs> and, and out there now, I find most people pretty square. Compared to Sun Ra? Yeah. Compared I didn't know Sun anything Ra about Sun Ra, other Nevelson. than he was a musician until you brought in. Nevelson was just as far out there. Holy heck. Yeah. And and they weren't just out there in the way they looked, although I appreciate that because, you know, um, I mean, there is there are some subcultures that are still a little bit out there, but look, and I'm coming out of hippie days where things were just wild. Yeah. And I think there's sort of a squareness and conformity even in, in hipster realms, that is a little appalling for me. Yeah. You know, uh, because as Jung said, individuation is the path of the maturing of the soul. So if you're not really becoming more individuated, if you're not becoming more deeply eccentric, yeah. eccentricity is the nature of soul. If, you know, you know, each of us is phenomenally different, and as we age, we grow more and more different. Yeah. Um, now I thought it was conformity was the last bastion of revolt. No, wearing the khaki pants and the polo shirts yeah. is the last no, what, frontier what, of what did they say, uh, individuality at this point. It's more the hobgoblin of little minds. Yeah. See, I came yeah. through the fifties where everybody was enormously conformist, and you know, I see. You know, if I can just slam younger people now, because I think it's <laughs> you know I think it's important for an old fart like me. And especially, I, I, I come out of the boomer generation, which the challenge is, is, that, is that, you know, I had high hopes for my generation at one point, And then by 1980, I saw people that had fought against the war, uh, cut their hair and become Reaganites. Sure. So I saw that everybody can turn into their opposite. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the younger generation is going to have some hard lessons in the years ahead. And uh, because, you know, when you're younger, you just don't have wisdom. Yeah. What you have is you have 
energy, uh, idealism. Mm-hmm. You have um, a certain kind of courage. And, you know, I mean, these things are really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when there's generational gaps, you need people like me so you don't do the same stupid mistakes we did. Yeah. You got to go on to bigger and better mistakes, not the same stupid stuff. The problem with my generation is you get to my age or younger. I'm 71. When you get to be in your 50s, you've you've smacked up against the world so long that everything is 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 degrees of gray now. So you get just kind of lost in the become tired mm-hmm. and you know I mean you know you hit you hit all sorts of situations where you go well on the one hand, but on the other hand yeah and you don't. You don't get much done when that happens. It's sometimes very important. Yeah. But what works best is when you have a combo platter of that energy and drive and militancy uh, of the young mixed with some been around, been there before. Now, to get back to spiritual and art. Yeah. I want to differentiate between the spiritual in art and the spiritual in the art world. Mm -hmm. Because there's a huge difference between art and art world. Mm-hmm. They're vastly different things. Yeah, and people don't realize that. And the young people, people get in, into this whole thing, and they they have some pretty idealistic and spiritual viewpoints of what they want to do and get done. And then they discover that the art world is not much different than the world of stockbrokers, sure, and uh, you know, business in general. Um, a lot of careerism, a lot of fashion, a lot of power, a lot of money. And, you know, we all get really disappointed by the whole thing. The art world is basically about materialism. Can be, yeah. It mostly is. (laughs) Yeah, Um, a lot of it, yeah, I agree with you. Dude, I was at the... I'm trying to change that here one episode at a time. I was at the Walker last night with the uh, new director and new curator. Yeah. And I walked away from that just wanting to hit myself in the head for a while. Because it's so square, so square, and so places like a mausoleum. Yeah. Now, the word for museum, of course, is same root as the word for mausoleum. Yeah. Um, but the aliveness is gone. What the fuck happened to the aliveness? Yeah. What happened? Back in the 70s, young artists used to take their thesis, glue it to the front door of the walker at night. Yeah. This is what's wrong with the fucking art world. You know? <laughs> totally. Or totally. they'd show up at the walker, take all their clothes off and say, deal with it. Yeah. Or or people would have a trench coat on and open up the trench coat and there'd be paintings yeah. hanging from their, their coat. Sure. And then they'd declare in their resume that they had a one-man show at the walker. <laughs> I had a buddy who, who uh, rented a U-Haul Parked it outside at an opening, had lights and everything in there, and had a whole show in there. Yeah. And people thought it was part of the Walker thing. Yeah. And they come in and they see this whole show, and finally the guards came out and said, You can't be here, man. You got to leave. <laughs> so he drove around for 20 minutes, came back, parked it in front again, and opened up again. <laughs> That's awesome. But you yeah. know, um, there's supposed to be rebellion, but now there's just careerism. Yeah. Everybody wants to make it, make money. Yeah. Be somebody, in, in, it's all insider stuff. And one of my, uh, I have very few heroes, but one of the people I really like, 
died a couple years ago, the, the novelist and poet Jim Harrison, he just said, stay outside. Yeah. Don't go inside. Yeah. He, 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 he did two years as a, as a, a professor, and then he said, get me the fuck out of here. <laughs> and he moved back to yeah. the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and wrote, wrote some of the better novels and poetry of the, of the century. But Yeah. Well, um, now, you know, practically speaking then, though, for the artist who wants to make a career out of their art, what, what's your recommendation for that I'd person? Don't. <laughs> Do something else for well, to make the money and pay the rent. Everybody, and... everybody, everybody in the arts, any kind of arts, yeah. smashes their head into this from a different direction. Oh yeah. But there's an enormous difference between calling and career. They're not the same thing. Totally agree. Yeah. Yep. Totally agree. There's a lot of mythology. It's a there's a lot of mythology, a lot of fairy tales in the art world. You know, number one fairy tale, art school is good for you. Yeah. Not necessarily. Yep. Might help you learn some technical stuff. If that. Maybe if, if that even if that, that or maybe you maybe you luck out and have a good mentor. On the other hand, I can't tell you how many people I know who have technical ability and have nothing to say because they didn't live. Yeah. You gotta go you gotta live. You know, for every Rambo there is, there's like 500 people the same age that didn't live enough. Yeah. Just because you did drugs or got laid doesn't mean you had enough life in there. Yeah. You know, I mean... Do you believe in young souls versus old souls? Do you think maybe it's a matter of they're just a young soul? Because some people are super young and I think can tap into something deeper. Anybody can tap into something deeper. It doesn't necessarily even mean you can make something out of it. I'm yeah. going to go back. I'm going to ignore that for a second. See if you can remember that. Okay. Uh, but I want to go back to the calling versus career thing. Yeah. Because the kids go through the schools, and they come out thinking that there's going to be a career for them in the fine arts. In the 80s, there's maybe a total of 800 artists in Minnesota. And I've met a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Now there's... 8,000, 18,000? Yeah. A shitload. There's lots of them. Yeah. How many people I know that make a living, an actual middle-class living from fine arts? Yeah. Three? Yeah. Now everybody, everybody has to juggle stuff. I, I worked in construction a bunch of years. I had a sportswear company. I did everything. Yeah. You know, when the, when the recession hit, I had to, at age 62, <coughs> go back to remodeling, even though my back was gone. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and people make different kinds of sacrifices. You know, some people go, okay, I'm going to, uh, on the side, I'll do uh, website design. Great, if it works for you. Yeah. It's got to get something that works for you. Uh, I know people that make very commercial art for hotels. Ruin their fine art. Sure. You know, you just, everybody, everybody makes, but career is how you make money. And calling is what you need to do in this life. You know, what you need to put on your gravestone. You got it done. Yeah. What did you need to get done? Me, I get up, I have to make art. And now for the last six, seven, eight years, I'm back to writing. I write two hours a day. Yeah. And I probably make art four or five, four hours at least. Yeah. Every day. And I'm this is a lot less than I used to do because I'm seventy one now. 
Yeah. But still, I you know at least six hours a day of being creative. But I it's just now, and it's okay if you don't have that level of obsession and commitment. Yeah. You know, not everybody does. It's what you need to do is find your own your own balance of these things. You know, my wife loves gardening. Gardening is not is not less important than my art. Yeah. It is not. Yeah. Um, well, there's something to be said then about bringing creativity to whatever it is you're doing. There's a big difference between creativity and art. Yeah. We all need creativity. Yeah. I, I, uh, when I, when I did do some arts education, just workshops here and there out in the schools and shit, I taught creativity training, not, not art. Yeah. I can't draw and I can't draw that well, I don't think. And yet... My drawings sell for a few thousand. Yeah. And I've had a solo show at a museum in Paris. It's my style. I can't make it look like blah, blah, blah. Sure. But I, I, you know, you give me a, a, a stick and, a, and, and a sand and I can do stuff because, and part of this is the spiritual training, the Buddhist training and the yoga training. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the most important things, maybe the most important thing, I think meditation is extremely important. And by the way, Making art is not meditation. Yeah. Uh, Do you think it can be? Is it intent? It can be. um, For instance, you actually some of the work you make is well. Do you call the art itself your uh, your prayer trees? Is that a meditation in and of itself, or are you bringing meditation to the act of making? I'm bringing meditation to it. Okay. What Chogyam? I spent some time with Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, and once he said to me that. Meditation is after the thoughts stop and before they start up again. How you get there is technology. Hmm. Okay. Actually, it's Rajneesh that said that. So, meditation is the state of consciousness where thoughts have settled down and the better. Uh, you 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 work to put yourself or or dance or slide your way into being in a, a place where there is uh, spaciousness and quiet, mm-hmm. and your mind has settled down. I've done it through running. I've done it through dancing. I've done it through singing. Uh, I've done it through lots of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done it through art, but with art, uh, people get unconscious, not necessarily conscious of the emptiness Mm -hmm. so if you're out there running and your hormones are pumping and everything and you're just in this no mind place what Rajneesh used to tell us was then lie down underneath the tree and watch your mind be empty don't just do it actively but really concretely so in the Zen tradition that I that I studied and you know I I sat there and faced the wall the classic Mm -hmm. And it was really good for me because it was so hard. It was such a confrontation. Yeah. Your body hurts. Your mind's completely filled with crap. And I think it's a little easy in the arts to distract yourself with what you're up to. Yeah. Oh, definitely. You know, where you get absorbed and you don't necessarily see that, uh, you, you know, you're so absorbed in what you're doing 
but you don't necessarily discover the nature of mind. And sure. What's important is to you discover, can zone out. Right. But what's that, really important is to discover <coughs> the nature of mind. Yeah. Uh, as they say in India, the mind, monkey mind, they call it. They yeah. say the mind is a good servant but a bad master. Yeah. And most people are servants of their mind, not masters of their mind. So the thing I, when I try to help people, when I mentor people, I mostly, one of the things is predominant is just to try to get the people to have some sense of what their mind's up to and how their mind triggers emotions mm -hmm. and how all that creates a world around you. So that hmm. you have your choice. You can sit in the emptiness, if you can go into that space, or you can choose to replace negative thoughts with positive ones. Yeah. Or you can do both. I like to do both. Yeah. So back to the art and the art world. Can art be spiritual? Absolutely, because you can address spiritual issues. Or you can work as an artist spiritually, or you can be a materialist about the whole thing. Yeah. Most of the art world is materialist, no matter what they say. And even sometimes the art world where the curators or such are calling things spiritual work, they're oftentimes doing so in a very materialist way. Sure. Not that it's a slippery slope. It's a tough. Not that we don't a live in a material start. world. We do because live in we a material do. Yeah. world. We exactly. have to navigate it and all. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's important to know what we're up to individually yeah. and collectively. Well, and that you know, within Buddhism, one of my, it's not really a criticism, but it's something that I've gotten from it was that to make sure that the meditation, and if you reach Satori or enlightenment or whatever it's to inform when you're not meditating because we're in the real world quote unquote and it's to um i think we're here for a purpose and i don't think that purpose is to escape it i think we're not, here to experience to, it but how we experience not it to get important. too zen with you yeah no nick to escape this world no nick to live in this world yeah Oh, I so hear that, you. So, 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 so no, no Satori. Yeah. No, not Satori. Yeah. If you're actually, and you know, it's hard to actually be here. Yeah. But when you actually are here, you exist outside the realm, the paradigm of Satori or not Satori. I agree. So, yeah. the, but the challenge is when you're you look like you and I, and we're out here, Free-forming. Outsiders. We're outsiders in the spiritual world, too. Yeah. Because you're not sitting regularly. There's a there's a Zen, uh, uh, a Zen center walking distance from here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Friends of mine run it. Yeah. Neither of us goes there. No. Um, there's all sorts of things. There's more Tibetans in Northeast than anywhere in, uh, oh, yeah. in the United States. There's a New York City. Is it Theravadic Buddhists? Yeah, there's all sorts right of stuff north, around. Yeah. We're not sitting inside a tradition. No. So sometimes it's challenging to keep the focus of what we're talking about while we're running around in the world doing all this stuff, even making art. 
Oh, sure. So the challenge of, of um, it's really getting, it, it gets very easy to get sucked into at every level that uh, we are somebody and something's happening. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, it is, but it isn't. Yeah. Well, let me ask you. Oh, slow down. Yeah. <laughs> Something is happening. Yeah. But it isn't. But it is. And you have to you have to learn how to sit solidly inside that kind of paradox in real time. Mhm. And how you get there whether it's art or something else, meditation is technology. Yeah. I love that phrase. I love that concept. Um, uh, when you're on the spiritual path, you work at at the beginning. You really work hard mm-hmm. to get somewhere, and then you get to places like I've been, where you know I I get visits from the spirit world or gurus. Or I do this, that, the other. Then you're you're in the you know. Then there is no mountain stage where miraculous stuff happens. Yeah. And then you hit really hit the stage where, you know, literally there is no not miraculous. Yeah. There is no not miraculous. Yeah. If you're trying, when I lived in India with Rajneesh, I had a, he had all these sub teachers that were amazing people. And I took a Tai Chi intensive with this English woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, we were training five, six hours a day in Tai Chi. Mm-hmm. And uh, for weeks, and then I got hepatitis. And when she heard I had hepatitis, the word got back to me. I was just hepatitis, just wasted. Mm-hmm. And uh, word got back to her, uh, to me, that she had fallen over laughing when she heard I had hepatitis, because <laughs> she said I was a spiritual overachiever, <laughs> and the universe needed to slap me hard to get me to stop fucking trying to hard so hard and just be alive. Yeah. And sure enough, after I, um, I lay on the top of a, a flat in an untouchable village for 56 straight days and not being, you know, I was yellow as a lemon and, you know, couldn't get back to the United States and my kids and stuff. And, you know, I at, at one point I was I was trying to meditate through the whole thing and I couldn't I was too tired, you know, I couldn't even couldn't meditate. And I had to give up everything. I had to give give up going back, I had to give up everything. And that's when the world melted. Yeah. That's when I had the experience of everything was perfect. And everything was I was looking over the river and watching all the people stream by and watching the untouchable people, you know, working in the yards below and all this. And it was just one great river, like in Siddhartha, if you've ever read Siddhartha. Yeah. um, And there was no me, no not me. But I couldn't get there. Yeah. But uh, the other side of that, and any teacher will tell you, is you also cannot not work at getting there sure although there's always exceptions to every rule i just don't recommend not working yeah well to that point like you mentioned doing the the uh, psychedelics 
was it Ram Dass that said drugs can show you heaven, but they can't take you there? So you still like you, what's your your God, God, difference God, between the 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 drugs and yeah. the God uh, bless Ram Dass. He just passed on. Yeah, a few weeks ago, I used to walk around holding hands with him. Yeah, in in the Oakland in sixty. I don't know, nine. Uh, I love the guy. Um, the thing is, is that um, depending on the drug, we can't put them all together. Mm -hmm. uh, and depending on how you use it, uh, because some people didn't have experiences with psychedelics. I did. Mm -hmm. You know, I had experiences of God. But it's a rocket ship. LSD. Yeah. And you got to come back. And you go and come back and go and come back, but you still have to walk the walk. Yeah. And I think I think it can be very valuable. Um, I can always kind of tell the folks that haven't taken psychedelics. Yeah. But not always, but often. Um, and I think that um, from what I hear, because I retired from that stuff in 1980. Um, but I hear that there's lots of work being done with um, mushrooms, even microdosing with LSD. And I think we'll see a time, maybe in my lifetime, where these things come back a little bit more into the foreground. Not the way hippies and you know the counterculture did it, because we yeah. did it in such a random, crazy fashion. That I mean, well, was it also part of rebellion? Oh, it sure. was a reaction sure. to something yeah, oh, else. Absolutely, everything was. Absolutely. Yeah. And importantly so. Yeah. Um, so a little story, because um, I like to tell stories about how stupid I am. So it's like 1970 and I'm at a party in, um, God, what's the county right across the bridge from San Francisco, just outside of San Francisco. And we're in hot tubs and all that, and a bunch of hippies, and it's kind of a really nice place and everything. And uh, I'm a, I was a vegan, I was a fruitarian. Yeah. Before they invented the word <laughs> vegan. Yeah. All I, I, there's periods where all I ate was fruit and nuts. Yeah. And I was skinny. I'm 204 now. I was, oh, probably 160, 150 back then. Yeah. And um, I go to a party and just sit there and kind of do yoga, you know. And I had these very rigid sense of what spiritual was. Yeah. And at this party, Alan Watts is in the kitchen. And I go out there, and he's drinking wine. And I don't hang out with him because he's drinking wine, and, you know, he didn't pass my purity test. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. And you think I've been kicking myself ever since on that one? <laughs> wow. Um, but Watts did write a book about, uh, I could have gotten smashed with Alan Watts, that would have been great. Yeah. But anyway, oh he God. wrote he wrote a book called, what was it? Beat Zen, Zen, Beat Zen, and Square Zen. And, of course, the nature of the reality is the nature of reality. Period. And, you know, well, he's talking about pathways, just like you can talk about Theravada Buddhism, Mahayana, Tibetan, all these pathways. Um, but they, you know, there's cul-de-sacs and swamps and side trips and ways to get stuck in all these things. 
And in hipster zen, there's lots of that stuff. And the thing, the challenge with not having a teacher is you don't have somebody that can tell you when you're full of shit. Yeah. Fortunately for you, Nick, I come around once in a while and, <laughs> and call you bluff. <laughs> True that. <laughs> uh, but no, that is that is yeah. that is one of the um, that is one of the cul-de-sacs with not being inside a tradition. Yeah. So beat Zen or hip, you know, hip Zen or whatever you want to call it, rogue Zen, rogue Buddhism. That's one of the challenges. Now, of course. One of the challenges of being inside a system is they can get very conservative, mm-hmm. and they can get very dry. So it's the, pin, yeah. the difference almost between being, you know, if you're on the outside, it can get too wet and sloppy. Yeah, and on the inside, it can get too dry and uptight. So, yeah. so uh, you know, everybody can use the form as an excuse for whatever they're up to. Yeah. Uh, I have a duty to not only do I like living more in a lovely world, mm-hmm. but I have a duty to, you know, I, I spent some years when I was meditating at the Zen Center um, reciting the Bodhisattva's vows, which mm-hmm. is basically, you know, <coughs> the. Uh, the deluding desires are inexhaustible. I vow to extinguish them. You know, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's pretty rigorous. Mm-hmm. And but when you, you take those vows, if you mean them, you know, you you, you vow to be the last to go to paradise. Mm-hmm. Everybody else goes first. Yeah. Part of the nature of that is by taking those vows, you are stepping outside of your own small separateness and considering others, including the earth, the whole thing, Mm -hmm. as your body, which this gets us into Christianity and Jesus's body. Mm -hmm. But the notion that the whole thing uh, is Christ's body, you Mm -hmm. know, and we're, we're, you know, so you devote yourself to, to the whole thing, whatever, wherever we put our energy, we perpetuate and we create more. Yeah. So I'm looking at this painting of yours in the background and how lovely it is, and it's it's every bit a uh, um, uh, an altar. It's an mm-hmm. ofrenda. Hmm. You did a painting ofrenda there. It's part surrealist and, and part Buddhist and part... Um, I'm trying to figure out who this goddess figure is. It's really lovely. Hmm. Thank you. Nice little Christian halo, which is prior to Christianity. It's a Russian Orthodox Greek Orthodox uh, uh, variant aesthetically on the halo. But of course, the halo, I mean, do you see auras? I I don't, no. I see auras sometimes. I've seen tree sprites. That's different, but similar in a way. You know, if if I remove myself from the world and start fasting and do, you know, take care of myself and do all sorts of things and not in the world too much. I start seeing auras again. Yeah. Sometimes I, I, I saw auras here when, you know, I just, when I was talking here, I just have to not get, there's a difference between seeing the etheric body, which is the light around the body, and then uh, it's more, it's a little more challenging to actually see the colors. Yeah. I see the colors occasionally. But you, you, you know, the halo around the head is, 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 is the aura. 
Yeah. And and the gold is actually has to do with that chakra. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me. Do you believe in soul? I don't believe. Okay. Um, belief is a whole different discussion. Mm-hmm. I experience soul. I experience God on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. To me, here's how I explain this stuff. Soul is the the movement of energy in this world towards embodiment and individuality. Okay. The more individual and embodied a person is, the more soulful we say they are. Thus, somebody like B.B. King is very soulful in how deeply and totally alive and human he was. Mm-hmm. Spirit is the movement of the embodied towards the disembodied, towards oneness, mm-hmm. towards uh, because the other side is simply a universe uh, that is not separate from this universe, but is is uh, less and less and less differentiated. So thus, uh, soul, whatever it is, there's there are levels at which uh, soul doesn't exist and is not worth talking about, the Buddhists tend to work at that level. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Buddha is, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Buddha nature in all of us, right? Um, the New Agers tend to think in terms, and the esoteric Western stuff tends to think, or in Christianity, talks in terms of the soul and going to the other side, and then there are esoteric levels where they talk about the different levels of the other side. To me, all that is true. Because we live in duality where um, oneness is real mm-hmm. and two-ness is real. And all the levels of two-ness are also real to me. The Buddhists just didn't want to focus on that. Mm-hmm. Because that can be a side trip too. Um, so soul, you know, one of my mentors, James Hillman, wrote a great book, everybody listening, called The Soul's Code. Mm-hmm. Truly great book. Yeah, I've already told you to get it about five times. <laughs> Writing it down uh, again. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, Hillman, in many ways, was a Neoplatonist. Um, and uh, he and Plato both described the notion that um, we're here for a reason, mm-hmm. each of us. We're here for a reason. This is also esoteric theory. Uh, and we have something, we have things we need to get done. Mm-hmm. We also have other souls that we're here to do it with. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I didn't just meet 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen that like this kind of long distance friendship occurs out of the blue. Mm-hmm. It occurs for a reason. Um, I have no doubt we have some connection uh, through lifetimes. Sure. Um, but the soul's here for a reason. A lot of when I mentor younger people, I'm trying to help them understand and get to a place where they know at least some of what they need to get done yeah. so they can focus. Um, and then you hit my age where part of what you're trying to do is let go and let yourself be okay with dissolving mm-hmm. into the oneness because that's my... You know, in India, that's my stage in life. Yeah. 
is to uh, thus I've been writing you know in the in the Zen tradition I've been writing some uh, death poems yeah which I think is hilarious because of course it scares the shit out of people <laughs> why do we even write a death poem <laughs> I thought no yeah. no I'm, I'm still here I just I just want to I just want to practice yeah. I want to have something good totally you know because I want to be that guy yeah, sits up on his deathbed, recites a poem, and then just lays down and that's it. Because <laughs> you know, wouldn't that be that would be you know that'd be something for the grand, great grandkids to remember. That would be interesting if uh, if you knew roughly when it's going to happen. If you invited artists, friends to come over and do the death sketch. Well, I are you know. So then we get into the word of world of manifesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and I've been working on this for a while. Yeah. Uh, why not? Why not? So. My Norwegian grandpa lived to be 104. Okay. Now, I grew up playing baseball and football and hockey and stuff. I'm really competitive. Yeah. So I'm hell-bent to beat him. Yeah. So I want to live to be 106. <laughs> 106 because I like the number six. I don't like the number five. So 106. Yeah. And so then my wife would be 102. And I keep seeing. So I, a lot of times, if I see something enough, it happens. Mm-hmm. I saw our whole show that I had here, mm -hmm. and be long before it happened, yeah. and that's when I knew I didn't have to worry because it was all going to happen. Yeah, and so I continually see myself with my wife lying in bed, everybody around us, grandchildren, great grandchildren. Yeah, see that's I'll, awesome. I'll see. I'll see if I can incorporate you into the picture. Sweet draw. So here's the point at which. Yeah. What I'd like from this blog is for you to turn to me and say, you know, Dougie. I was wrong. You were right about pretty much everything. <laughs> I'm going to edit out everything where I didn't sound good. <laughs> Can you say that, <laughs> No. I did want to ask you real quick before we wrap up. Um, if you had one piece of advice for an artist and one piece of advice for somebody who collects art or looking to buy art. I think the thing for artists is for everybody is what does your soul need to do? If you don't know what your... If you, if you know what your soul needs to do, that's what you do in this life. Mm -hmm. If you don't need know what your soul needs to do, ask the universe to tell you. Get around somebody like me that can help you work on it. But don't mistake it for career. You may be able to put together a career that is synonymous with you're calling. But, you know, if you discover that opera is everything to you and you're already 40, it's going to be hard to start a career in opera. Mm -hmm. But you could get a job working for an opera and live around opera and maybe sing an amateur, you know. I mean, there's ways you could live your life in, in connection to what your soul needs still. Mm -hmm. But most of us have to do a bunch of other stuff, mm -hmm. juggle things. To somebody that collects art. Or looking to. Looking to. <coughs> I, I would say this. What I'm most interested in is not people buying my art. Mm -hmm. I find that really boring. What I'm interested in is conversation and patronage. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in somebody that's interested in um, what I do. And especially finding people that... Uh, 
have an ongoing sense with that? Now, maybe you roam through a bunch of artists, but at some points along the way, you'll discover some people who you're more interested in, you know? So not only go to their shows um, or bite their work, but, um, you know, I like, and I like the patrons best that turn into champions. Mm -hmm. You know, they're the ones. What's that, the difference between a patron and a champion? A patron is somebody that encourages my career financially and otherwise. A champion is somebody that um, pushes what I'm up to. Excuse me. A patron is somebody who pushes my calling mm -hmm. and maybe my career. Champion is helping like... Uh, champion might come to one of my poetry readings, but also might say, you know, might write me a note later and say, well, I like this poem, but that one sucked. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. It's a, it's a level of involvement. Yeah. And, you know, part of it also might be as, a, as an art collector is... Uh, everybody's creative. People really underestimate what it takes to be quote unquote an artist or a musician or a poet or something and to do it for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. I like to say that anybody can be an artist at 25. Anybody can. Um, by 40, I'd say 90% of the artists are gone. Mm -hmm. Life gets too hard. Kids, job, everything. By 55, if somebody's still doing art, I have respect for them, even if I don't even like their art. Because mm -hmm. um, it's hard to keep it going. I think, I think art collectors and people looking at collecting art uh, uh, just need to understand that they're on a journey also uh, towards their own creativity. And um, part of that is maybe learning from, from, from an artist, you know, how to inform their own journey. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That, that's a good place to end. What you just heard was an abridged portion of what was a multiple-hour conversation. To appease Dougie, should he listen to this, I will say that much of what wasn't heard here was us veering off into the bottomless depths of politics, a subject he and I often explore and that he has often schooled me in for the sake of brevity, and to keep on topic of the arts and their relationship to soul and spirituality, not to mention keeping my ego intact, I focused this episode on his perspectives on the arts and spirit. You may have noticed that I didn't say all that much myself, and frankly, that's because A, I agreed with a lot of what he had to say, and B, in many ways this felt like a mentorship session, and rather than interjecting myself, I was happy to listen and take in everything he had to say as I'm grateful for his time and his willingness to impart what is really just the tip of the iceberg where his wisdom and insights are concerned. In particular, I was really captivated by his notion of spirit and its differentiation from the soul. And if I understood correctly that the one gravitates more towards this reality and humanness while the other gravitates more towards the all or oneness. I would love to hear what your thoughts on this conversation were and what you think of the nature of soul or spirit and how it relates to the arts, if at all. Feel free to leave comments wherever you are hearing this podcast or send me an email. Again, I want to thank my guest. You can find out more about Dougie Padilla online at DougiePadilla.com, on Instagram 
at Dougie Land and Facebook at Dougie Padilla. Before we go, I wanted to share with you one more art exhibit opening this weekend, Valentine's Weekend. Safe Word, an erotic art show, opens Friday the 14th and Saturday the 15th and features 80 visual artists and 25 performers. As this opening is literally only one mile away from the Rogue Buddha Gallery, you can easily fit both exhibits into your Valentine's evening plans as we'll be opening Unloved Creatures that same night. Now, there is a $20 ticket price to the Safe Word Show, so be sure to check out all of the details online before heading there. You can find out these details and more about other wonderful art exhibits taking place this weekend at mplsart.com. That's mplsart.com. They have a passion for sharing the talents of our fair twin cities like none other, and their directory of galleries and events, it's unsurpassed. So be sure to check out mplsart.com. And that's a wrap for this episode of Art Wonderful, coming to you from deep inside the Rogue Buddha Gallery. I want to thank you again for joining me, and I hope you do so again and often. Until next time, remember, the best life is the creative life, and the best self is the artistic self. Cheers. Did Too you like that? You, <laughs> that Too bad you didn't say that. I would have argued with you about that. <laughs> I'm keeping that in, by the way. I had a hunch you'd like that outro. I, I, I do think that, that we argue pretty good. <laughs>